Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near. And there is none to help me. Many bowls encompass me. Strong balls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joints. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when you cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that You've given your people the eyes of faith to, to believe it. Lord Jesus, we thank you that these are your words. And so we see them as words that are good for us. We believe that they are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will change us. That you would conform us to be more like you by the power of your spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I wonder what your biggest fear is. Or maybe you've got a few, maybe there isn't just one. That thing that you hope will never materialise. For me, or certainly when I was young, it was the fear of being abandoned, and particularly being abandoned by my parents. 
I had this irrational fear that one day, a bit like home alone, I'd wake up and they'd just be gone and they'd have deserted me for all the wrong things that I'd done. Uh, there was a time when I was maybe six or seven where uh, this fear became all the more real. Mum had taken me out clothes shopping, not for me, which is bad enough, but for her, which is, uh, for any six-year-old boy, the worst type of event that you can attend is shopping with your mum for her clothes. Anyway, off we went, trundled into Birkenhead Town, and I think we ended up in, in M&S, and I'd made my disagreement with, with the occasion quite clear and made a bit of a protest, but didn't have much of an option, so along we went. And uh, mum's there, clacking through the rails in, in M&S, and I'm kind of sitting there, skulking around, a little bit miserable. And then I spot what, for a six-year-old, looks like nuggets of gold on the floor. And if you remember back, some of us will remember this, Remember on, on coat hangers or, or, or clothes hangers, they used to have those little square coloured things that would have the, the size number of the, the garment. I don't know whether this is just a British thing or an American thing. Maybe you relate, yeah? And anyway, they were scattered all over the floor, lots of different colours. Brilliant. So I'm there down on my hands and knees collecting all these little things together, trying to get a nice row of, of consecutive numbers. And I must have only been down there for, I don't know, less than a minute. And I pop up and mum's gone. She's not there at all. And as a six-year-old, I'm shorter than the clothes rails, so they're kind of towering above me, and I can't see her anywhere. And so I panic, and I start kind of rooting through the aisles, and it's a bit like a jungle when you're that small, and I'm trying to find Mum, and I can't find her, and so I'm a little bit nervous, and I'm calling out her name, Mum, Mum, and nothing. And so I do what any troubled six-year-old boy does. I just stood and screamed for Mum, and just (laughs) cried where I was. And then she comes around the corner. She was probably just in the next aisle and I couldn't see her because they were so tall. She comes around the corner, scoops me up and everything was okay. And she's not abandoned me since, I can say. (laughs) But being abandoned, it is a scary thing. And particularly by someone who, who loves you. Someone who's there to care for you. There is something about losing the safety and the security and the, the, the constant reliability of love and, and care and goodness of someone who loves us. There is something, something terrifying about the prospect of losing them. And, and that is a real prospect for some of us. I know for some of us, we have lost, lost loved ones who, who love us and who have cared for us and who've provided a sense of security and protection for us and losing them has brought brought real anxiety and fear to our lives. Or even some of us, we do this often. Elizabeth and I will just sit there and we will start crying at the prospect of one of us eventually not being here. The prospect of losing someone who loves us and cares for us and provides security and goodness in our lives is terrifying. And that, folks, is true for all of us. All of us will find ourselves experiencing that at some point. And that is because all of us crave genuine love. We all crave security. We all crave, as humans, it's, it's kind of wired into us. We crave a, a sense of safety. It's just part of being human and it's part of, of who we are because that is how God created us to be. He created us as people who, who long to love and, and who crave security and safety. God created humanity to enjoy the reliability of care and goodness and the consistency of love in our lives. And he created us primarily to find that and and to enjoy it in him, in his presence. 
In fact, that is the only place in this life, folks, that we can find love and goodness and security and comfort constantly. It is only in the presence of God that we can find those things consistently because that is who he is. God isn't just someone who who loves or someone who does good things. No, he is love. He is goodness. And so if he is the source of those things, then if we crave those things, it makes sense that we would find those things in him. And actually every man and woman, whether we're a Christian or not, every man or woman gets to enjoy something of the goodness of God in this life. We get to enjoy what we might call his common grace towards us. You know, just waking up in the morning and being able to breathe again. That's a gift from God. That's his goodness towards you. Being able to go to bed this evening and, and know that the sun is going to set and it's going to pop up again tomorrow morning. That, that is God's goodness towards us. Being able to enjoy the beauty of creation. That is God's goodness towards us. It doesn't matter whether we're a Christian or not. We get to enjoy something of the goodness of God towards us. But, but folks, that won't be the case forever. When this life is over, despite what we might be told... We don't just fade into nothingness. Or at the other extreme, we don't automatically go to a better place. No, folks, when this life is over, all of us come before God in judgment. And on that day, unless we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, on that day we will be excluded from the perfect, loving and good presence of God for eternity. The very thing that we crave and we long for. And that isn't God being unfair or being wicked. That is, is his just and right punishment for our sin. Sinners cannot rest, cannot abide in the presence of a holy God. And a day is coming when the source of pure love, the source of pure goodness itself, will have to turn his pack on every guilty sinner. And they will spend an eternity away from his love, his goodness, away from any sense of security and safety. That is a terrifying reality. A terrifying reality. But the beauty of the psalm that we just read, Psalm 22, the wonder of this psalm is that that is a reality that Jesus offers to save you from by experiencing it in your place. By experiencing that terrifying reality in your place. This summer we're working through a number of of psalms and and each of these poems in the old testament that we read they point towards something of the the person or the work of the lord jesus christ and this psalm psalm 22 gives us perhaps one of the clearest prophecies of the lord jesus christ's saving work on the cross when we talk about prophetic writing in the bible we're talking about about a type of writing that explains something that's going to happen it's looking forward into the future and it's, it's telling us details about what is to come. And for the most part in the Psalms, when we read prophetic writings when, and we've come across them before, we read of, of, of things that were going to happen, things that we were going to see in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the most part, we would also see that they spoke into the situation of the person who was writing it. So all of the Psalms we've looked at so far are Psalms of David. And David writes in a way that that helps us see something of Jesus, but it also tells us about his situation. 
It reveals some of the, the, the struggles that he was going through in his context. But Psalm 22 is different. David writes this psalm that we've just read. But almost all of the biblical scholars agree that there is no time in David's life where, where it actually correlates with what he's just written. There's no time in his life where what he describes here in Psalm 22 actually happened to him or applied to him. As David writes this psalm, he is speaking purely about Jesus. Purely about Jesus and his death on a cross. And and he speaks and he writes in incredible detail. The Spirit of God who inspired David to write this psalm wants us to look solely at Jesus. And specifically at the cross. And as we come to the cross... He wants us to turn to Jesus in faith. That is the aim of this psalm. To come to the cross of Jesus, to see the finished work that Jesus accomplishes on the cross and to put your faith in Jesus. And that is something that we do continually, by the way, folks. Putting our faith in Jesus isn't just a one-time event. Like maybe, maybe that might be something that you need to do for the first time this afternoon. Maybe for the first time you need to put your faith in Jesus to see what he has done for you, to see that he offers you an eternity away from that terrifying reality, to put your faith in him, to save you from that through the finished work of the cross. Maybe that's something that you need to do for the first time this afternoon, but, but I would guess that actually most of us know and most of you, you've already done that. Most of us in this room are Christians already and we've made a profession of faith. But I wonder how many of us this afternoon find ourselves in a place of apathy towards Jesus or of spiritual lukewarmness. Like we just become a little bit disinterested with Jesus and, and our relationship with him. Or maybe we're struggling through just a season of doubt. Like, like we have faith, we know what we've been saved from, but we're just, we've just got lots of questions Maybe we're going through a season of deep anxiety and fear. Maybe we've been consumed by the cares of the world. Well, Psalm 22 wants to take you to the cross and wants you to see Jesus and to see the finished work that he accomplishes on the cross. And Psalm 22 and the Spirit of God who inspires David to write it wants you to put your faith in Jesus, to renew your faith to be refreshed and reinvigorated in your faith, to believe once again that Jesus is who he says he is and he is worthy of your obedience. And so Psalm 22 will lead us to the cross and it is going to show us at least six aspects of Christ's work on the cross in order to stir our faith in order to to rejuvenate our faith and help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ Fresh. And here are the six things that we're going to see. We're just going to work through these briefly. Starting here with this first aspect that we see in verse 1 and 2. We see how the Lord Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross. You know, there's some parts of the Bible, folks, that are hard to read, like really hard to read. And not necessarily because we don't understand what's going on, but because when we read them, it's almost unbelievable to read what we're reading. And Psalm 22, verse 1 and 2 are some of those verses. 
See, we see in these verses, and as we read Psalm 23, because of the way it's written, because David, as he writes it, is, is, is prophesying purely about Jesus, we can read these verses as if Jesus is speaking. And in verse 1 and 2, we see that Jesus, he is crying out to the Father for help. We picture him on the cross, crying out to the Father, asking for help, asking maybe for relief, but, but there is no answer. And actually, we see, and if you know the Gospels and you know the accounts of Jesus' death, those words in verse 1 will be familiar to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the very words that Jesus cries out on the cross. And as Jesus cried out to heaven, there was no reply. Just silence. And just think. Think Think for Jesus what that meant. For eternity past, Jesus has enjoyed the the perfect communion of the Father and the Spirit. This perfect fellowship, this this love that, that that is endured for all eternity. The peace, the joy, he has enjoyed that. And during the three hours in which he hung on the cross, as he cried out to the Father, nothing. See, as Jesus hung on the cross, he hung as a sinner condemned by God. Not bearing his sin, but bearing the sin of God's people. And as he bore our spiritual punishment, he experienced the forsakenness of God in our place. The absence of the loving communion with the Father. And Jesus experienced that for us. We see that he was forsaken. We see in the midst of that, he was still faithful. Verses three to five. Even in the depth of darkness and carrying the weight of the sin of God's people, Jesus never turned his back on God. You see in these verses, verse three and five, Jesus looking towards the Father and him confessing these truths of who the Father is. You are holy. You are enthroned on the praises. You are trustworthy. Like at no point as Jesus hangs on the cross does he look at the Father and doubt the character of the Father. At no point does he, does he look at the Father and blame the Father for what he is doing or accuse him for what he is doing. Jesus entrusted himself to God. He knew that his death on the cross was the will of the Father and that this was the only way to redeem a people to himself. And so he was obedient in his death. So that when, as we see in verse 5, so that when you and I cry out to him for salvation, we can be rescued. Even in the most terrifying moments of the cross, Jesus remained faithful in his death and he remained faithful for us. He was faithful and verses 6 to 8, he was despised. Jesus here describes himself in verse 6 as a worm. And not a man, the lowest of creatures, scorned and despised by those around him. You know, Charles Spurgeon, you might have heard of him, a famous preacher and pastor from London. He was writing about this psalm. And when he comes to verse six, he says that this verse, it's almost a miracle that it's in the Bible. Like, it's so crazy that, that, that this would be true. It's, it's a miracle that, that it is. 
He says this, here's the quote up on the screen. How could the Lord of glory, talking about Jesus, be brought so low as to be not only lower than the angels? So that's, that's where humanity sit. We have been made just a little lower than the angels. We saw that in Psalm 8 a few weeks ago. And it's not that Jesus has only been brought lower than the angels, but even lower than men. And then listen to this, what a contrast. What a contrast between I am and I am a worm. What a contrast between Jesus, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a contrast between the Jesus that that we read and we heard about in Colossians chapter 1, who is supreme above all things, who is the firstborn of all creation, who is preeminent. What, What a contrast between the one who holds all things together to the one who is above all things to to become one who isn't even a man who is just aware. Spurgeon was right when he reflects in that way. On the cross, Jesus became the worst of us. And those surrounding the cross, the the soldiers, the the Jewish leaders, the, the shouting and the baiting crowds, they looked on Jesus and they despised him. He was hated by the very ones that he came to save. And yet it was his divine will to be humiliated and to be covered in shame. And he did that for us. He was despised then in verse 12 to 18. He was crucified. In these few verses here, we see such specific prophetic details. Remembering that that this is written hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus came and put on flesh and lived amongst us. These verses give such profound detail about how he would be crucified. They describe exactly the physical torture that Jesus would endure. Look at verse 14. His bones were pulled out of joints. Crucifixion was was a tortuous form of execution. And the weight of the body of those being crucified would, would pull down on the joints and would dislocate the fingers and the hands and the arms and the shoulders and would push the pelvis out of joints. And verse 14 He describes himself being poured out like water. Most most probably he's describing just the intense perspiration, intense sweat caused by the the intense suffering that he has undertaken. In verse 14, his heart is like wax, describing the agonizing strain on his heart and and his, his body as his body is overwhelmed in pain. Verse 15, his strength is exhausted. He's dehydrated. Verse 16, he's surrounded by crowds who are filled with evil hate. Verse 16, again, his hands and his feet are pierced. You know, as David writes this, crucifixion didn't even exist. It didn't come along until maybe 100 years later. And yet we read here of how his hands will be pierced and his feet will be pierced. And in verse 17, and 18, we read of the humiliation as he's stripped to partial nudity in front of those that he loves. Folks, there has never been a more barbaric and humiliating and tortuous death to be suffered. And yet Jesus, even though he was completely innocent, completely innocent, he was crucified for us. But yet his crucifixion wasn't defeat. Verse 19 to 21, we see that he was victorious. In these verses here, we 
we picture Jesus still on the cross, still suffering, still crying out in pain, still struggling under the weight of the sin of his people, but that weight is soon to be lifted. There comes a point on the cross where, where Jesus' payment for the sin of God's people in his body is made complete and it's accepted by the Father. But as Jesus takes his last breath, he doesn't die as one who is defeated, he dies victorious. See, we can imagine Jesus recalling this very psalm as he hangs on the cross. He must have done. He, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, and we can picture that, that maybe he recalls all of Psalm 22. And in particular, if he did, he would have been reminded that though he has been forsaken by God because of our sin, he is about to be vindicated. He would have been reminded that God isn't far from him as he reminds himself of these verses here in verses 19 20 and 21, God is not far from him and his precious life will be lifted up in victory. As we get to this point in the psalm, the tide is turning and it's shifting from tragedy to triumph. The curtain is being pulled back on a scene that to those who look on it, maybe would have seen defeat. But actually, as the curtain is pulled back, it will reveal a spectacular victory won by Jesus for us. He was victorious in his death. And finally in verse 22 to the end of the psalm, his death was an atoning death. Atonement means, means a payment that is made for the wrongs of someone else. Jesus' death on a cross was an atoning death. As you read through those verses at the end of the psalm, they might be familiar again from part of the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the writer quotes this part of the psalm. And as he quotes these verses, he's teaching a specific point. The writer of the Hebrews is lifting Jesus up and is trying to help those that he's writing to, to see that Jesus is better. He is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's, he's better than the prophets. He's trying to lift Jesus up and to, to show him and present him for who he is. Like, the, like Paul does in Colossians 1, to see that he is supreme above all things. And as he, as he quotes this part of Psalm 22 in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, he is teaching a specific point about the atoning work of Jesus. And the point is this, that only Jesus could do it. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He's the only one who can make payment for humanity because he is fully human. Because he identifies with us, but also he's the only one who can defeat Satan, sin and death because he is the only human who is also fully God. And he did. He made payment, full payment for the sin of all of God's people. In verse 24 of Psalm 22, we see that the Father hears the cries of Jesus. Hears the cries of Jesus on the cross. As Jesus cries, our Father, forgive them. The Father hears his cries and he forgives his people through the atoning work of Jesus' death on the cross. And what we see at the end of Psalm 22 is that atoning work reaches far and wide. In verse 23, it starts first with Abraham's descendants, those who are Jewish by heritage. They are the first ones that would be brought in through the atoning work of Christ Jesus. And isn't that what we see in Acts chapter 2? That that is where the gospel first goes. It goes to the Jews as Peter preaches. And those who put their faith in Jesus, they are brought into the family of God. They receive an eternal inheritance. But then in verse 25 to verse 29 in Psalm 22, we see that after the Jews, salvation comes to the Gentiles. Those 
who aren't Jewish by heritage or those in verse 27 who are from the ends of the earth or the families of all the nations. Probably you and I. And it doesn't stop with us. Look at the end of the psalm in verse 30 to 31. The atonement work of the cross will continue to impact generations that are even yet unborn. (laughs) Isn't that a beautiful picture? David, thousands of years ago, as he writes this psalm through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks forward and prophetically sees the finished work of the cross, gathering in his people, people from his nation, Israelites, and then, and then the gospel spilling out into the Gentiles and gathering those in. And then he foresees people that aren't even born in his day. And in the day that the cross would be seen before men and women. But even as we read this psalm now, we can hold on to that promise. I wonder even in this room, there are those of us who are yet to have children who we will see the fruit of this promise being born in that we will see the atoning work of Christ Jesus being claimed as their salvation. And that will come to them through the proclamation of the finished work of the cross that will come through us. That's what we see at the end of Psalm 22. That we shall proclaim his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, to a people yet unborn. And what is the message that we proclaim? Look at the last line of Psalm 22. The message that we will proclaim to those around us is this, that he has done it. He has done it. You you know, in the Hebrew, the literal translation of those five words, you know what it is? It is finished very words that Jesus speaks as he breathes out his last on the cross. It is finished. He has done it. All that needed to be done for us to be brought out of the terrifying reality that has come into every single one of us. A reality that we will spend eternity suffering under the right judgment for our sin outside the loving and good presence of God. All that needed to be done to save us from that reality and to bring us into an eternity with God has been done. The atoning work of the cross, it is finished. During the summer, one of the things that that Micah and I love to do is jigsaws. We're in the middle of a thousand piece jigsaw at the moment. And, um, And he just loves it. And we spend hours and days and weeks sometimes pulling these jigsaws together. And the best moments of a jigsaw if you're a jigsaw lover like me and Micah, you know the best moment is that last piece, right? Putting that last piece in and then standing back and seeing the complete puzzle. The worst thing in the world, isn't it? When you get to the end and you're like, there's one piece not missing. <laughs> but when everything goes right and you put that last piece in, what a joy it is to stand back and just to see what you've done. And what Micah and I like to do is we just leave it there for a few days, maybe even a few weeks, and just take in the picture and... We'll get the girls to come in and they'll claim some of the victory that they put one or two of the pieces in, but it was our work really. And we'll take photos and send it off to grandparents and we enjoy it. You know, Psalm 22, it, it is written to bring us to the cross. And it is written to, to help us see the finished work of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. 
And as we end the psalm with that, that beautiful declaration, he has done it. It is finished. I wonder if the, the psalm is written just, just to bring us to the, to the cross and just to help us just to see the beauty of what it is. And just to enjoy it. And not to kind of break it up again like we might with a jigsaw and just move on to the next thing, but just to stop and to enjoy it and to take it in and to celebrate it and maybe to boast a little bit about it. To see the finished work of the cross, to claim it as our own, to allow what we see to rejuvenate and revive our faith. And actually what you see through the psalm is this, As our faith is stirred, we are led to worship. It's scattered right through the end of the psalm in particular. In verse 23, we read this, you who fear the Lord, praise him. Verse 23 again, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Verse 24, stand in awe of him. Verse 26, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Verse 27, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The finished work of the cross is our means for for salvation. It is our entrance into an eternity with God and salvation from that terrifying reality. But it brings us ultimately to a place of worship, doesn't it? It brings us to a place of seeing Jesus for who he is and praising him and glorifying him and adoring him and loving him for who he is and for what he's done. I'm going to pray for us in a moment folks and then we're going to stand and we're going to do just that we're going to respond as the psalm would have us respond in worship we're going to sing and we're going to share this meal together